This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good afternoon and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Happy October, a beautiful time of year, and the month that has become focused on women's health and breast cancer awareness. Joining us today is Dr. Clifford Huddis a medical oncologist from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, the oldest cancer treatment center in the world, 1884, Cliff, I believe, and his clinical practice focused on breast cancer. From 1998 to 2016, he was the chief of the breast medicine service. Then he became the CEO of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, what we call ASCO. And I want to stop right here and offer a personal giant thank you to Dr. Huddis for taking such superb care of my sister when we brought her to see you almost 11 years ago. So thank you and welcome, Cliff. Thank you very much. They're the kind of things that you don't forget and uh, hard to say, actually. Um, so I'd love for people to understand more about ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and its mission. Yeah. Medical oncology and indeed the whole field of cancer medicine is relatively new. Um, We didn't have medical oncology until uh, in a functional way the 1960s, and we didn't even have a specialty as such and board examinations until the 70s. I say all that to make the point that ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, was founded as the need came up for this kind of uh, focus in 1964. And in the more than 50 years since, we have grown uh, to be the largest professional society for cancer doctors around the world. We have about 50,000 members, two-thirds of them in the U.S. and one-third outside the U.S. And one of many distinguishing features is that we're not single specialty. All the cancer doctors, from medicine to surgery to radiation oncology to pathology to psychiatry, anybody who touches a cancer patient in their professional life should be part of our broad community. That's a really good point for people to hear because um, when a person has a new diagnosis of cancer, it has become 
pretty much routine, wouldn't you say, in most medical centers for there to be a tumor board where we have multidisciplinary. You walk into the office, your primary care that sends you for the radiologist has to, wants to opine, the uh, oncologist or the, the person who may give chemo or immunotherapy, the surgeon, and we all put our thoughts together. The outcome is going to be better than isolated opinion. So it makes sense that your organization includes all those great minds. So the mission, um, from what I understand, you want to get more money from the government to fund people who are currently doing research and the up and coming young, bright stars uh, going into research. But it's also because what's offered are clinical trials. Let's talk about what that means. And ASCO does more than that. You raise, you want to raise awareness. You want people to get into clinical trials and you want to open the door for access to those clinical trials. What is a clinical trial? Well, again, when, when we talk about how relatively modern oncology is compared to many other specialties, how, how relatively recent, that's because we didn't have good tools for treating cancer for most of human history. In the 19th century, we began to be able to offer surgery. In the 20th century, we added radiation therapy. And really in the middle and late part of the 20th century, we added drug therapy, what we call systemic treatment. Because this is a new field, because there wasn't a lot of, uh, I would say, a lot of anecdotal evidence even of treatment and treatment benefits, we made it a priority to try to learn from every patient over all these years. And so the idea of studying patients in a formal scientific way has been embedded, especially in medical oncology since the founding of the specialty. In fact, as a fellow goes through training, and just as a quick side note, remember you go to medical school, you do a residency in internal medicine, and then you do a subspecialty training fellowship in medical oncology, almost any medical oncology fellow is formally schooled in how to conduct clinical research. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is many of the most critical advances that we've made over the last half century have been dependent on sequential, well-thought-out, step-by-step advances in clinical trials. So more simply, a clinical trial is a formal scientific study testing in some way the impact of a specific and controlled treatment. Should patients get drug A or drug A plus B? That would be a comparison study to see whether A plus B is better than A. And I'll say one more thing that we have to take as a little bit of humility, because historically, unfortunately, many treatments for cancer were fairly modestly effective and somewhat toxic. Clinical trials were really important so that we could have confidence in recommending one treatment over another. We can't rely on anecdotes in this field. We really have to rely on evidence. And we get that evidence through clinical trials. I love that you include the word humble because I tell my own children repeatedly, you can't be happy unless you're grateful and you can't be grateful unless you're humble. You can't be arrogant when you're taking care of patients because you can have a hundred people and give each one an aspirin and one could die and you can't predict and I, I, I will say I am forever grateful that I, too, trained at Memorial at Sloan Kettering. And when I got there, now we're both internists and my subspecialty is GI and yours is oncology. But um, my some of my friends said, well, you're going to a cancer center to study GI. But as you say, actually, 
Memorial, as I understand, started as a surgical treatment center for cancer, I guess in 1884. And then, as you say, before chemo became available, the next step was radiation. But um, what I learned that very first week when I walked in there, I had patients from around the world that, that they, Marianne, you follow these five or six people in the hospital. And Memorial Sloan Kettering, the cancer center is all the research, but Memorial Hospital is where the patients are treated. I'm explaining it to the listeners. It's 20 floors of cancer patients. There's a floor of acute leukemia. There's a floor of chronic leukemia. It is so specialized. And every day I walked out of there in one piece that I wasn't using a walker and that I didn't have a feeding tube and I wasn't going to chemo. I said, I am a lucky girl. And then you, that's your whole world is all cancer patients. So from my training, what I was leading up to is, yes, I was studying GI, colonoscopy and all those good things. But that's because if somebody's in the hospital with lung cancer, they could still have an ulcer or they could still have reflux, right? So as it evolved, Memorial is just a center of excellence. And I always try to explain to my family and friends, it's the oasis. It's that place. It's one in a kajillion hospitals where somebody's Every place else is out of options, but you go there because those clinical trials, you say, you know, we've made some progress with the blue pill. What happens when we combine it with the pink pill? Or what happens if we switch to the pink pill? Is that a pretty good way to say it, Cliff? I I think that's right, although I would upgrade this in a couple of ways. First of all, I have to say emotionally, I too went to New York for Memorial because I knew I wanted to be an oncologist. And once I knew that, I knew where I wanted to train. The one thing I would say, though, is... Um, When I went there, uh, and this was in the 80s, people would say, of course, well, that's where you go Mm. for the last-ditch effort. And that's just not true because clinical trials run the spectrum of everything from prevention through prevention of recurrence, early-stage treatment, to palliation or cure of advanced disease. And there's one other point I just have to almost rush to. By no means does everybody need to go to a Mecca. In fact, one of our charges has to be to get the same kind of cutting edge, standard care, and access to clinical trials made available no matter where you live. In fact, for us at ASCO, that's one of our key motivating sure. principles. Um, so a patient has a new cancer diagnosis. In what situation might their doctor recommend that they enter a clinical trial? And, and how often would you say that happens? Well, the second question is pretty easy. For children, it is part of this um, standard of care to offer uh, pediatric oncology trials. And that indeed is how we revolutionized cures in a disease like acute lymphocytic leukemia. We inverted an 80% fatality rate into an 80 plus percent cure rate over a period of years because we enrolled almost every child with that rare disease on a clinical trial and then incrementally ratcheted up the outcomes. Conversely, in adulthood, in solid tumors, especially in adulthood, so that's breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, prostate, total trial participation around the country is low single digits, typically around 3%. It's a funny little social thing that parents will put their children appropriately on clinical trials and afford them the very best chance of improved outcomes while contributing to our total body of knowledge. But adults, for whatever reason, just don't seem to avail themselves. Now, there are lots of barriers to participation in clinical trials. And uh, one of our jobs right now is to reduce those barriers, but also to make sure that doctors 
everywhere have access to trials, so patients don't need to be inconvenienced. And I think your first question was, how often do doctors offer trials? And that's different from how often people sign up. Sure. What we would really like is a world where every patient in some way is contributing their data to our learning. And for example, less rigor in terms of who gets enrolled in a trial, fewer exclusion criteria. Those are the factors that sometimes keep people off of a study. And I'll give you a very simple example. Sometimes there'll be a trial that doesn't allow people on if they have hypertension. I'm making that up, but that's an example. Yeah. Well, if you do that, you know, you're wiping out at least a quarter of adults in America right off the bat. And you have to ask yourself, why would people with hypertension not benefit from a treatment that you're studying? And, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that if we eliminate those barriers, we make it possible for many more adults to participate in studies. The last thing I'll just say is distributing the clinical trials apparatus, especially nowadays uh, through digital means, can really open up a lot more doors. And I'll add parenthetically, through COVID, we saw that that flexibility in many cases comes at no real price. We had to change mm -hmm. how we did studies when people couldn't travel and when uh, doctors weren't even feeling safe in their offices. And all of a sudden, all these challenges to participation in studies seem to be uh, going away. And, and I'm hoping, hoping that we can keep some of that flexibility going forward. So the takeaway after my long-winded answer is far fewer adults participate in clinical trials than should, and we are on a quest to make it easier for more people to do so. So let's paint a picture for our listeners. We have a, a minute left in this segment. Mrs. XYZ, you have a new diagnosis of breast cancer. How does that person get into, where's the clinical trial where they all uh, initially started at a place like the uh, National Institutes of Health? Are they local? What does the picture envision? Do they have to travel somewhere? Or is it just, here's the formula of medication or therapy, do it right there in Philadelphia? I think every patient with a cancer diagnosis should ask their doctor what trials might be available and appropriate for them. And that's the simplest way to start this Got quest. It. Let's take a little break, and when we return, more on clinical trials for cancer therapy with Dr. Cliff Huddis. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. And welcome back to your radio doctor. We're hearing great information that our listeners can take away. That's the purpose of our show, to bring hope and access to care, especially if you're faced with a new diagnosis of cancer. When you say, Cliff, we're here with Dr. Cliff Huddis, the CEO of the American Society of Clinical Oncology Cancer Specialists from around the world, surgeons, people who provide chemotherapy, immunotherapy. Cliff, we're talking about clinical trials and Every person who's newly diagnosed with cancer should ask their doctor, can I be in a clinical trial for several reasons? That becomes an absolute valuable bank of data. And we learned people are becoming 
more familiar with words like data and why it's important from listening to all the talk about COVID. If we know what happened in uh, 10,000 out of 2 million people that get a certain therapy, we'll know the pluses and minuses right there, or what we call a registry. A registry is that collection of people's histories, uh, what medications they had through life, what conditions, all those factors could influence their risks for cancer, how they respond to therapy, et cetera. Why do you think, you mentioned something very important, that when it comes to children, parents are right there, do whatever it takes, clinical trial, I'm not frightened. But sometimes uh, adult patients hesitate. And do you think it's because they think that there are two groups here, we're going to study whether this therapy is effective or not, or which x-ray works is more sensitive or accurate? Do you think they're afraid they'll be put into a group that gets no therapy? Or the other question is, sorry, um, the therapy they're getting, is it already FDA approved or is it experimental? Could that be a, a myth? Let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah, those are great questions. And, and there are a lot of answers, actually, because I think every person has to ultimately make their own decision. And, and I would just be I think we have to think broadly. There are many cancers where the outcomes are really good and the treatments are very effective and the goals of research studies, for example, are to minimize toxicity or even yeah. eliminate treatments. That's one example. And of course, at the far other extreme, there are diseases that are very advanced and then uh, with a very dire expected outcome where uh, essentially any benefit would be appreciated. So I think context matters. Your individual mm -hmm. goals as a patient really matter. Some people are willing to do anything for any benefit. Other people at different stages of life with different perspectives are seeking something different from their treatment. This is not what you asked about, but it's a reminder of how important it is to have a trusting and open relationship with your physician to make sure your goals are shared. And when that aligns around the possibility of clinical research, I do think that there are some people who are sometimes cautious about participating in studies for all the reasons you alluded to. First of all, a treatment that does not yet have FDA approval may not be yet fully understood and studied. And so there may be some unknown risks. That's part of the reason that the informed consent that we offer patients mentions that. However, the one thing that I have heard over the years that I think we should dispel is the idea that you're taking a chance at getting less therapy than would be standard. Now, it is true that sometimes in a randomized trial, the new therapy will actually be inferior to the standard therapy. That has happened at times, but generally speaking, that's very rare because we have reasons for putting things into uh, research studies. And we've seen evidence in earlier phases of studies that they offer promise. But to be very clear, even in a randomized trial, and most notably, uh, in a randomized trial with a placebo, there would be no arm of that study that would be assigned to something less than standard therapy. In the extreme, if there's a patient being assigned a placebo in a clinical trial, that's because there is no standard therapy known to be mm -hmm. effective. Mm -hmm. And a patient would know that going in. Um, for some people, there's a control issue that they you know, don't want to not know what they're on, and blinded trials can, can be like that. The last thing I want to say is I want to back up to public policy. One of the big reasons people didn't participate in clinical research for many years was that insurance didn't necessarily cover the expense of participating. 
That was largely but incompletely addressed in 2008 when the Affordable Care Act was passed. And in recent years, we at ASCO have been working really hard to close the last little bit of gap. We have gotten across legislation called the Clinical Treatment Act, which requires the state Medicaid programs to pay for clinical trials participation, just like Medicare does already and commercial insurance. You may ask why that matters because it addresses a kind of structural disparity, uh, which is that, uh, unfortunately, a greater proportion of people on Medicaid, of course, are lower socioeconomic groups, and therefore they were disproportionately excluded from clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And as you say, you want to broaden, and we're going to talk about that, what pe- how are people selected or, or, or excluded from a study based on maybe their medical conditions, like high blood pressure or something, but you don't want it to be because of dollars. And um, obviously that makes beautiful sense. I want to add too that, that we were both at Memorial in training in the 80s. And um, I'm probably five minutes older than you, but um, when I started, HIV didn't have a name. And we were seeing so many of these beautiful, healthy young people coming in with a skin cancer, which is kind of like the scarlet letter, Kaposi sarcoma, that would also go to the GI tract. So before they got advanced therapy, we had to stage them or say, is it just on their skin? Is it internal as well? And that would determine their therapy. But the point is, it was the head of dermatology, Dr. Safai, who said, gee whiz, why are these horrible skin cancers that bleed unmercifully occurring in these young, healthy people? And he helped put together the, it was the lifestyle, multiple partners, whatever. And it was that whole brain trust of everybody sharing information. And then HIV was named by a Jeff grad uh, or isolated, but the information was shared, data banks, research, chit chat, ASCO, sharing information, learn from each other, be humble. Is this what you think? Well, what do you think? And we saw that with HIV. We learned so much about HIV and the immune system. And I hope that we can learn as much from COVID and the way the immune system responds to that because immune system palooza, that brings up immunotherapy. Can you give us an example of a clinical trial? Do you like this free flight of ideas? I just, yeah, but I will connect the dots. Can you think of, you gave me a great example the other day, lung cancer. It's not one condition. There are multiple cell types, all of which respond differently to therapy, have a different have different prognoses. Is there a clinical trial that you can give a practical picture to our listeners of a drug that stands out or a, a therapy or even a diagnostic tool that that because of clinical trials it made a big, big difference? Well, certainly as a breast cancer medical oncologist, I mean I only treated breast cancer in my professional career. Um, There were many landmark moments, but I think the one that most people remember vis-a-vis changing the world was the drug trastuzumab, known by the brand name Herceptin. And -hmm. this was developed scientifically because it targets a protein that's present in excess in about 20% of breast cancers. It's associated with a more aggressive breast cancer. This protein is called HER2, H-E-R-2. And an antibody was developed against it, and and that allowed us to consider the immune system as part of treatment, although the way the antibody works is a bit more complicated than that. Um, But it was a revolution because all of a sudden patients with advanced disease were seeing these remarkable responses. Fast forward to the randomized 
clinical trial, and actually it was really four big randomized trials, where patients who looked like they were cured already and were getting standard chemotherapy and standard hormone therapy for their breast cancer were randomly assigned, that's coin flip, randomly assigned to get or not get this exciting new antibody. I want to emphasize all these patients had the appearance of cure. So everybody going into the study had reason to be optimistic that life was going to resume for them in a normal way and so on. But when the results of the randomized trial were presented in ASCO in, I think it was 2005, standing ovation for 10,000 people in a special hall because there had been this dramatic additional reduction in the risks of death and in the risks of recurrent disease for these patients. And from that day forward, almost every patient with early stage curable breast cancer who had HER2 positivity also could benefit from the addition of Herceptin. And that was a, one of many. We've seen similar transformative breakthroughs, I think most notably in melanoma. I have to add, when I was in training, melanoma, metastatic melanoma was really quite a terrible disease. The treatment options were limited and not effective. And this week, as we record this, the country's just celebrated the 99th birthday of former President Carter. Years ago, he was treated for metastatic melanoma with immunotherapy. His case is an anecdote, but it's consistent with what was seen in the revolutionary clinical trials where all of a sudden a proportion of people with this rapidly fatal disease appeared to be cured. And I mean, I think it's fair to say whatever happens that Jimmy Carter will die of old age, not of metastatic mm -hmm. melanoma. Mm -hmm. That's an awesome example. And as you said, you want to broaden the eligibility of including patients in studies. But, but as a scientist, when we plan an experiment, we ask one question. We have one variable. So we want to know if left-handed people are better drivers or if people that have melanoma um, have any other cancers or whatever the question is. That's part of the distinction because we can only answer one question at a time. We can't have three or four changes in an experiment at once. But then that helps us with therapy because let's say COVID. Again, people have seen so much in the news. They have a better understanding. If you want to treat a condition, let's say the COVID virus, people are familiar with the spikes. We can either uh, take away the food for that virus and, and not let it replicate or reproduce, or we can twist the spike and say, ha-ha, now you can't attack, attack, attach to the cell anymore. Or there are different steps where we can intervene. And you just mentioned immunotherapy is a whole lot different. Chemotherapy works differently than immunotherapy. And that's what brought up the uh, expression targeted therapy. Let's talk a tiny bit about chemotherapy versus immunotherapy. I think that would give people a practical takeaway. Yeah. So, so you know, the field of cancer therapy, as I say, was a little bit hit or miss for many years, but precision medicine or targeted therapy is actually really old. People forget this. One of the very first demonstrations that targeted therapy could be effective was breast cancer with the removal of ovaries. So let's just break it down for a second. Young women have ovaries that produce estrogen. The majority of breast cancers have an estrogen receptor. So for them, that estrogen can be thought of as fuel. If you take away the estrogen, you take away the fuel, the cancer dies. And anti-estrogen therapy for breast cancer for more than a century now has really tried to exploit that very simple biology. Then we get to HER2, which I just described to you in breast cancer. 
And in the ensuing years, there have been many others. I think a couple of key places where this has been transformative, of course, is chronic myelogenous leukemia, which is um, marked almost always by a chromosomal aberration called the Philadelphia chromosome, and there's a protein product there that can be targeted with a drug. Uh, and when that drug came into widespread use, there was a revolution in CML and what to expect in terms of the outcomes. For melanoma, it's specific mutations that are present in a certain percentage of the cases. And all of that's about targeted uh, treatments or targeted therapies. Mm -hmm. um, in distinction, chemotherapy Actually, you know, it gets a bit of a bad rap because of the history of experience and toxicities with it, but most chemotherapy drugs are naturally occurring toxins that we have explored to try to figure out where they can be uh, useful. Um, but it is true that to some degree they are big hammers hammering small nails. And so mm -hmm. we have lots of side effects and toxicities that are undesirable. Precision medicine lets us get around this. And I think the third uh, area that, that you asked about, and the one that's certainly gotten tremendous excitement and led up to the awarding of the Nobel Prize in medicine, is yes. immunotherapy. Yep. Um, I, I want to spend a moment on that because there are some simple truths there, but also some misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. One of the things to bear in mind is that our cancers arise from us. So unlike the foreign invader, be it a virus or a bacteria, sure. these are somewhat harder for our immune system to recognize as foreign and to target without uh, at the same time hurting us. So it was a really big breakthrough when we learned in the last 20 years how to, in a targeted way, manipulate the immune system just the right amount in order to activate a tolerable amount of um, immunity uh, without making patients too sick. And I think you're seeing this uh, grow out now, for example, in the uh, CAR-T uh, world, where we are yes. beginning to engineer targeted uh, blood cells that can come in and go after uh, the cancer. So it's yeah. early days in, in many ways, but it's exciting days as well. And, and to close this out, it's because there was immunotherapy that we've seen revolutions, as I said, in melanoma, but also in lung cancer uh, and in some GI cancers too. Very exciting time to be in uh, practice and, and hopefully uh, more hope for patients. Let's take a little break and we'll hear about this week's Real Champion. And now for your Real Champion, I call this segment, The Cliff Diver. Many young athletes dream of making it to the Olympics, but very few come close. Cliff DeVries was well on his way, but life took him in a different direction. Cliff was a superstar diver at Rush Henrietta High School in Henrietta, New York, an All-American in both junior and senior year. He was also the New York State champion of the Empire State Games. With a scholarship to the University of Kentucky, his strong work ethic and continued progress, it made the Olympics a realistic goal. But soon, the move to more complicated dives was impeded by a growing numbness and weakness in his right shoulder. After one semester, he went to live with his sister in Utah, and during that time, he answered the call of his Mormon faith and committed to a two-year mission in Argentina. When he returned, he sought the attention for that pinched nerve in his shoulder, but the MRI revealed a six-inch tumor in his spinal cord. 
It was March of 1995 when this 21-year-old athlete heard the gut-wrenching words that he might only have a year to live. He came to New York City and his hopes were lifted by the surgeon who predicted he'd walk again within a year. The 13-hour procedure included unexpected complications and at one point during surgery, Cliff had no signs of life. The trauma and scarring to his spinal cord left the right side of his body completely paralyzed and he was told to plan the rest of his life in a wheelchair. He grew tired of hearing he wouldn't be able to do this or do that. And in a YouTube video he made with ESPN, he explained that after weeks in the hospital and months of physical therapy, he began to move his big toe. He promised himself, I'm going to walk again. I'm going to make it happen. Not only am I going to walk again, I'm going to make something of my life. Well, it took six months to stand alone, a year to take a few steps, two more years to walk from his front door to the sidewalk, but now he walks a mile a day. One day, he went back to his high school to watch divers, and they offered him a job as a coach. And just four short years after surgery, he began coaching at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Within a year, he was Diving Coach of the Year in Upper New York State Athletic Conference, and again in 2002, all while working as an accountant by day. For a short time, he quit coaching for a career in accounting and was even hired by the CIA but soon let go because of his disabilities. Well, fate brought him back to RIT, and by 2016, he had been named Coach of the Year six times. In 2006, he founded the Upstate New York Diving Club, which is now the largest diving program in the state and sends divers to national championships every year. Athletes range from age 6 to 18 and enter Division I programs across the country, including Stanford, Notre Dame, Auburn. By year 10, almost 30 kids had achieved All-American status. This year alone, one diver finished in 11th place in the Olympic trials. Cliff has been highlighted on ABC News, the Democrat and Chronicle newspaper, Reporter Magazine. He says most people gravitate to his remarkable recovery from cancer. But after I talked to Cliff, I think the real miracle is his outlook on life. He made decisions based on his life events and feels very fortunate. He thoroughly enjoyed his year in Utah and describes an amazing experience in Argentina with wonderful, loving, and kind people in the beautiful blue skies of Azul. He gained a deeper understanding of himself and what it means to help other people and be selfless, all while growing in his own faith. He cherishes his amazingly beautiful wife and the three children they share from her first marriage, along with their 11-year-old daughter, Grace, who loves to dive. She practices straight leg racing on a hanging bar in their dining room. He even considers the timing of the surgery as fortuitous. Had he gone when the symptoms first appeared, the technology wasn't even available. He trains his champions to perform at a high level, but still have fun. They play tag in the water or dance while they wait to dive, but they focus on the diving board. Cliff can't remember not loving diving and misses what it's like to bounce, to fly, and then go through the water. So each year on his birthday, with the pool deck filled with his athletes, he slowly climbs the three meters up to the high board and dives into the pool 
to thunderous applaud. He uses a lot of energy to walk and says his dive isn't pretty, but ends his ESPN video with the question, when you see my dive, what else can you do? What else can you find in yourself? What can you find in others? When you look in the mirror, what else is there? What else do you have? What more can you bring out? Probably a little beyond what you think right now. We salute you, Cliff DeVries, your real champion. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Cliff Huddis, the CEO extraordinaire of ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And we're learning so much valuable information. The whole reason that we get into medicine, Cliff, is to help people and bring them hope and be honest when the picture isn't looking so great. But the advances, even since we trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, the hospital there, it's miraculous. It's exponential what we've been able to, not I, I'm just a pencil in the Lord's hand, but um, just even colonoscopy. When I started, we would look through the scope, and it seems kind of elementary now, but the advances even in the technology and digital and uh, and hopefully AI, we, that's a whole separate show, will help us in a good way and not make us robotic, which brings up a big effort in America, the Cancer Moonshot Program. That, I think, was first initiated when then-Vice President Biden in 2016 said, let's let's defeat cancer, and he re-announced in February 2022 his goal of cutting the death rate from cancer in half in the next 25 years. What progress have we made in the 25 years up to now? Well, first of all, the moonshot is a really important effort, and it's you, you summarized it nicely. It really has two phases, if you think about it. The initial one in 2016, I would say, was technology-focused. Invest in technology. Let's make progress that way. But I think it's exciting that in 22, the reignited moonshot is really focused on the broad role all of Americans can play. It's it's the practical application of um standards of care and, and elevated quality of care. So it's getting back to cancer screenings that were missed during the pandemic. It's quitting smoking and it's participating in research learning from every single patient. Why should we do this is really the question you're asking. And, and I want to embellish that by po pointing out how many times I go to social events wherever and people say, well, we've put billions into cancer. Why aren't we making progress? The answer is we're making extraordinary progress. Um, on the one hand, the chances of uh, dying of cancer have, if my memory serves, declined from 200 to 144 in 
100,000 people per year in the last 20 years, roughly. So that's about a 25% reduction in mortality. It's better in some diseases than in others, um, but it reflects tremendous progress. And I want to highlight something else for everybody. The absolute number of people dying of cancer in the United States will go up despite that progress. Why? Because the population of the U.S. is older, it is larger, and it is much more obese. And that obesity uh, causes there to be a lot more cancer than, than there used to be, unfortunately. So we have some forces working against us, even as we make real progress. So I want to spend a minute on the obesity idea, because I do a lot of lecturing, um, aside from the radio show, and um, and I don't limit it to women's, a lot of women's groups ask me to, and I'll say, you know, you talked earlier about breast cancer and estrogen is the food for breast cancer, and I guess uterine cancer. Um, but after menopause, estrogen is produced, I'm being succinct here, in adipose tissue. So yeah. the more weight you're carrying bumps the risk for breast cancer. 12 cancers, we saw this study come from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, published in a, a, a great journal, The Lancet Public Health. Um, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, uterine, esophagus, gallbladder, kidney, liver, ovarian, pancreas, stomach, thyroid, multiple myeloma, and brain tumor, meningioma. And does it make sense to rattle that off? To a degree, yes, because we want this information to motivate people. Obesity, we're going to do two shows in November about that, right before holiday time. Obesity is so tough. And there are so many layers to that onion, because it's not because somebody's careless or just eating a lot of chocolate candy. There are so many reasons why obesity um, is, a, is an illness in itself for people, but people should realize that it does bump the risk for cancer. And the other hiccup we experienced was COVID. My little GI world, that alone from when shutdown began, what was it, March 14th or 15th of 2020, from March 15, well, I think was that Monday, to June of 2020, the American Cancer Society tells us 18,000 cases of colorectal cancer alone were missed or delayed in pickup. And so we know the earlier you start treatment, the better the, you know, hopefully the better the outcome. And uh, these treatable cancers, I think the other thing that people don't realize is the number one cause for cancer death is lung cancer, but we can't go x-raying everybody that's ever been in the presence of smoke. We want to especially... Um, prevent and educate, screening, all those good things to get you before you need the treatment. Your your role and ASCO's mission is to treat. It's primary docs and people like myself who do general GI uh, with screening. But how has the impact of COVID slowed us down or, or set us back? It's a huge problem. We have five cancers, most people would agree, for which we have evidence-based effective screening programs, colon cancer being a great one, 50% reduction for people that have colonoscopy in their mortality. Um, for lung cancer, we have screening for heavy smokers based on the use of CAT scans. Of course, for prostate, PSA, and, and, and digital rectal exam. Uh, for breast cancer, famously, of course, mammography and some additional imaging modalities. And finally, one of the most effective programs globally is cervix cancer screening. Um, I mention that because that's a manageable list. All of us as adults can run down those 
well-supported evidence-based screening programs, and either we're complying with current recommendations or we are not. And if we're not, you know, at, at the individual level, the risk is relatively small, but when a cancer is delayed or missed, the tragedy can be massive, obviously. And you are absolutely right. Um, when Ned Sharpless was at the NCI during the beginning of the COVID uh, 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 crisis and tracking it, there was a huge uh, loss of screening. And my understanding is to this day, we have not recovered completely all those missed screens. The healthcare system, of course, was strained by COVID and other factors. So in some geographies, uh, there really isn't enough bandwidth to even catch up on that screening. So yes. we have real challenges. And, and I just couldn't agree more that um, instead of treating cancer, we would much, much rather detect it early uh, when the whole range of treatment is both less invasive, less time-consuming, and more effective. So um, the, you just can't uh, underestimate the critical importance of robust evidence-based screening programs. And, and I will just close that by saying, you know, strongly support adherence to the American Cancer Society guidance for screening. And this is why the moonshot effort part two emphasized a return to screening. It was really as part of the recovery. Absolutely. But I think, too, um, and the purpose of our show is to outline nuances. I can't tell you how many patients you and I know that if a, a woman has that there's a, a link in the risks between colorectal cancer and gynecologic cancers. If a, if a woman's diagnosed with colon before the age of 50, up goes her risk of ovarian or uterine. And the reverse, if, if they have GYN at a young age, mm. uh, we really want to check them stat for colon. Um, but there, there are some doctors who don't know that. More people die of colorectal cancer than breast cancer, but it's not a contest. The emphasis should be on take care of yourself. Don't say, well, I took time for mammo and GYN, so I feel fine from the waist down, the colon can wait. All of these things are accessible. And when they're not, that is your goal too, to get get access to care is moonshot uh, material as well. Right. right. Getting out there. Mm -hmm. And I would also just, you know, come back to your concern about obesity. Uh, there's really two things yes. to say about that. That's an everyday effort that we can make, like choosing not to smoke, to wear our seatbelts, to not drink and drive. We want to maintain a healthy weight. However, uh, I worked, as you probably recall, in specifically the area of obesity, inflammation and cancer as a researcher for years. One of the subtleties is it's not a direct linear effect. When you see a patient in clinic who happens to have a new colon cancer, whether their body mass index is elevated, meaning they're obese or not, you can't link their exposure to obesity to their individual cancer. It's a no. collective effort. It's a public health effort. It's an effort across all of society. And Good point. I, I just always want to mention that because... Uh, when we ourselves all choose or are able effectively to have a better energy uh, balance, uh, we're contributing to the public good. Yes. It's just like uh, tanning booths. Uh, you might be able to quote better than I. I've read articles that say if you are exposed to the, I guess it's UVA, C, in a tanning booth below a certain age, 75% increase in your risk of melanoma. Why the heck? Right. Would, but when you're young and invincible, you say, ah, it's not going to happen to me. It's just like when I do a lecture, I don't say there will be 154 or whatever, 154,000 new cases of colorectal cancers here. 
the people listening say, well, I'm part of the other 338 million or whatever. That's not, it doesn't include me. If you say one in eight people will get breast this year. So look at the people in your book club, one in uh, two and a half people over 50, one in two people over 60 will get colon polyps. You say, hmm, better get my scope. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but and I, I'm glad that you're planning these shows on obesity. I, I presume that you're going to end up pointing out that the problem with obesity starts long before we get to cancer, and the list of oh, reasons yes. to confront this problem is long again before you get to cancer, from yeah. heart disease to diabetes to arthritis. I mean, well, you know, Cliff, just like saying somebody who's dependent on alcohol or drugs, it's a it's a mental condition too. Obesity for a lot of people, they just they're addicted. I don't know you could say they're addicted to food, but it's their it's their happy place, and uh, so know. many it's, layers it's a to challenge discuss. for sure. Yeah, and and it's unprecedented right now. I mean, statistically, in the United States, technically speaking, we are at the top of the list worldwide in terms of the proportion of people who meet the technical definition of obesity. But to be fair, it's a global problem. Yeah. And in fact, it's the fastest growing problem, even in parts of the world you're not used to thinking about, like Southeast Asia. Yeah. Well, fatty liver is just about the number exactly. one cause for liver transplant. Outdoing hep C, what we're finding, uh, you know, making progress with therapy. It really is something that, that's important to focus on. Let's take a little break and come back for a wrap up with Dr. Cliff Huddis. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. Welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Cliff Huddis, the CEO of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. We call this segment Your Weekly Prescription. Cliff, the role of ASCO, the average uh, person who has a new diagnosis of cancer, for our listeners, ASCO, what role do you play in advancing equity in access to clinical trials that we talked about, clinical trials, and then care for their cancer? Yeah, look, for ASCO, our mission is conquering cancer through research, education, and promotion of the highest quality, equitable patient care. That's what we're here to do. And so we pull every lever that we can. I've talked about the Clinical Treatment Act, which for us was a major victory after a 10-year battle to make sure that every patient in America has insurance coverage for routine costs of clinical trials participation. So that was one way of addressing uh, inequities in the system, since, of course, uh, certain groups of people disproportionately enrolled in Medicaid were therefore disproportionately excluded from trials. Second thing that we're doing is breaking down barriers to entry. So we've written a series of papers highlighting the ways that clinical trials can be simplified, easier to enroll in, made easier to enroll in, and lower costs to run so that, of course, more people can access them in more places. And we've put that kind of uh, point of view into action ourselves. We've run a, we are running a very large multi-site clinical trial testing precision oncology drugs based on genomic testing of tumors 
for all kinds of cancers off-label, meaning we're using FDA-approved drugs in diseases where the drugs are not approved, but where the genetic mutation is present uh, that predict that the drug might work. And within that trial, reduced eligibility criteria to the bare minimum and allowed many more patients, therefore, to potentially benefit from cutting-edge new therapy. And then I think Mm -hmm. the uh, third thing I'll just say is, in addition to our broad efforts at confronting uh, insurance coverage access and, and so forth, we are confronting the challenge of inadequate or, uh, or limited access to care in rural America, which, as you know, is uh, far less well covered by doctors in general and specialists in particular. So we're running a demonstration project right now in rural Montana, where a medium-sized city with a cancer center serves as the hub, and then the spokes can be smaller facilities sometimes a couple of hundred miles away, staffed by a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, and they're able to treat patients under direct digital supervision uh, from the hub. And this model is really exciting to us as a way of dealing or addressing uh, inequities because not only can it cross large geographic areas, but it frankly may cross small geographic areas uh, in that have wide socioeconomic gulfs inside of big American cities, and it may have applicability to inequities around the world. So uh, for us, that's all. Uh, those are all a series of linked and parallel efforts that are fundamentally aimed at reducing the barriers to access for the highest quality of care. So to me, that is the most important message um- I I should say for you, (laughs) for our listeners to know that clinical trials can make a huge difference in the big picture because we're collecting data. We're looking at thousands of people. And you mentioned something interesting the other day, an example. Let's say there's a new therapy, say breast cancer. And the group that studied because they live near the centers or whatever uh, provides access are women who are 45 to 60, but then you say the majority of people getting this drug are 75 to 90. We haven't studied a, a representative um, group of people. So by broadening access, and then you, because I, I, I kept thinking, well, if the study's being done in Washington, D.C., and I live in rural Montana, but as you say, this is the beauty of telehealth. We communicate, and you can visualize exactly how they give the chemo, or, or I shouldn't say chemo, whatever the therapy, how quickly and, and safely and people need to also know, an example, we did a show on hair loss. We talked about minoxidil, originally a blood pressure pill. It causes hair growth. Yay. And it's already safely used for blood pressure. The drugs that you use, if not FDA approved, you still have a general idea that they're safe and that you're going to get the standard of care. And then the the treatment you're studying is icing. Is that a fair way to say it? It depends, of course, on the study. Uh, mm-hmm. But... but- you know, the truth is, even for drugs that are FDA approved and out there in the market, sometimes we discover late that there are toxicities yeah. or side effects we didn't know about. The key is to always be learning. Yes, we can always do more. Speaking of learning, is there a website that you would send patients or listeners to read more about clinical trials? Well, certainly, we're very proud of our award winning website aimed at patients. So it's for patients and families. It's written by ASCO members, but it's edited to be readable and um, useful for non-medical professionals. Uh, It is called cancer.net. And there are 
disease-specific sections in there that go through every disease, staging, typical treatment, questions to ask your doctor, all that kind of stuff. But there are also columns sometimes by doctors. One of my favorite is, of course, after our annual meeting every year, people will write columns for patients to understand the meaning of the breakthroughs that were reported in our meeting. Fantastic. Dr. Cliff Huddis, you have brought a ray of sunshine and a lot of hope to listeners who will now be able to visit cancer.net because we want to net them into the fold, net to get. We want to get people better and bring hope. Cancer.net. Dr. Cliff Huddis, you're the best. Thank you for taking care of my sisters and thank you for being who you are. Great work at ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology. Thank you for allowing me to join this exciting show. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor every Saturday at 5 p.m. here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Listen to this show again and all of our shows on odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Thanks to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Recovery Centers of America. Want to advertise in the show or be a regular contributor? Send an email to info at yourradiodoctor.net. Tell us about a champion. Shoot an email to info at yourradiodoctor.net. Please follow us and like us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Feel free to share our posts with family and friends. Next week, join us at our regular time at 5 p.m. on Saturday afternoon to discuss the trifecta of vaccines, an update on the COVID vaccine, the flu vaccine, and what you should know about the RSV vaccine when we welcome Dr. Paul Offit from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And finally, I ask that you take a little time each day to pray for peace. Peace in our world, our country, our cities, our families, and each of our own hearts. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love, and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre recorded.